The following sermon was preached during a Sunday morning reunion at Harvest City. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Uh, it is an honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Johnson. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, um, I've known Scott for quite some time. Uh, we go back to our college days, uh, back when he was at UNI and I was here at the University of Iowa. Uh, and we've uh, kept that friendship alive through these years uh, by God's grace. Um, a little bit about me. Uh, my wife, uh, Rebecca, and I, we've been married for 16 years. Uh, we have three boys. Uh, Micah, who's 13, Matthias, who is 11, and Maxwell, who's 10. Uh, we moved to Denver, uh, and we lived there for about seven years. Uh, we moved back to Iowa City about eight years ago. Uh, we lived, we've yeah, been attending Veritas Church since uh, coming back, uh, and we have just really enjoyed uh, Iowa City. God has put Iowa City on my heart, and being here with you this morning uh, is a true joy. It is uh, to just know that there are other brothers and sisters uh, in Christ that are out there trying to advance the gospel, uh, to take God's kingdom and make it even more in this city um, is so encouraging to my heart and my soul. Uh, so me and my family a few months ago, uh, we took a family vacation to Colorado. Uh, it's really nice to go back to the place you once lived because you know a lot about it um, and it's very familiar to you. Uh, so during that trip, we had set out to hike a 14er. And if those of you who don't know, a 14er is a mountain that's 14,000 feet in total elevation. And we've been talking about this adventure for months in advance of this trip. But we have been building it up. We have uh, been, you know, hiking the mountains of Tiffin, right? And like we've been training for this. And you know, my 10-year-old was like convinced he couldn't do it. And was so like oh, in his mind on it, and we so months. This whole thing has been building up, and we get to the the trailhead. Uh, and first and foremost, when we get there, my youngest son, he can see the mountain, he can see the top of the mountain, and he starts crying, like he just melts because he's like, I can't do that. There's no. It was so overwhelming to him, but we 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 coaxed him into going um and like you can do it buddy and we're all in this as a team together uh, we're gonna do this uh and so we're into this hike uh and we're like three hours into the hike uh and we are literally like a half a mile um in distance um or maybe even like a tenth of a mile actually a tenth of a mile in distance and like a, about 750 feet of elevation so it's a steep climb but we're almost there. We can hear the people at the top of the mountain. And you know, me and my oldest two um, are up in front, and we're encouraging our youngest, come on, buddy, you can do it. My wife is back there with him because uh, <laughs> she's just a saint like that, right? Um, and I look around, and my oldest, he all of a sudden is like hopping around because he's 13. He's got no frontal cortex, right? And, like, <laughs> it's just not clicking for him. No, I love him. But anyway, he he jumps and he twists his ankle. And I was like, ooh, that's not good. And he's like on the ground. And he can't get up. Like he literally, I'm like, no, come on, buddy, you know, put some dirt on it. Like, you know, we're we're good. And by that time, like our youngest catches up and I 
I'm looking and going, oh, this is not a good situation. And it turns out he could not walk on his ankle. Uh, it, like, it was not going to happen. We have a choice. Do we stay there? Uh, what do we do? Do we leave him there and all go ahead? Do we one parent stay back? We elected to stay as a family and turn around. And the only way my oldest son could get down was with me or somebody else carrying him. And so I had to literally carry him down on my back uh, for four hours. Uh, at some various points, there were some generous people that were like, hey, you want me to carry him? That they took on like, you know, 10, 15 minutes, which was a nice relief. Uh, my middle child, um, he thought he was pretty strong. And so he was like, dad, can I do it? So he did like five minutes at a time. Uh, and together as a family, though, we made it down this mountain, but I was exhausted. And today's story that we read is about a father, a son, a mountain, and a sacrifice. Uh, and I think it's really important for us to understand that this story takes place in a grander narrative than we could ever imagine. And as it's unfolding in Genesis, as it starts, God is the main character of this story that goes all the way through Revelation. So we can't lose focus as we're looking into this passage that this is about God. And we see God, chapter 1, as the creator. And various chapters, the character of God is getting revealed more and more as we go through this story of Genesis and, and God's story of who he's like. And so this story is a little jolting, you know, shocking. You know, there's a shocking response from Abraham. Uh, there's a shocking response from God. And it really should jolt us as we're walking with God and get our attention. So as we go through this story, we're going to answer three questions. But I hope at the end of this story that you see God and Abraham in a completely different lens. So as we start in verse 1 here, we see that there's this burnt offering to, to be asked of from Abraham. And this wouldn't have been an unknown thing for Abraham. Um, for you guys, that, to understand a burnt offering is to show appreciation to God. It's a way of, to appease God um, who's feared in a, in a reverent way. Um, in short, it's a wholehearted apology for any and all the wrongs um, that someone had done, intended or unintended. Um, and it was really just a spiritual act to be done. Uh, and what he's asking is he's asking to sacrifice your son, the only son, whom you love. Now, we have to remember Isaac is the fulfillment of Genesis 12. The, the reader would have been going, wait a second, <laughs> uh, what's going on? You see in Genesis 21, we see that Ishmael, it's not an option to fulfill the Genesis 12 promise. Abraham was not ambivalent to Isaac. He was madly in love with Isaac because it was this fulfillment of this promise. But it was also his son. I don't know about you, but me, I'm going to throw myself in front of a bus before my son. I'm literally going to carry him down a mountain for my son. And this is what God is asking of Abraham? 
God is asking, trust me with the promise. Follow me with this. You see, this language is not new. On a mountain, I will show you. In Genesis 12, he goes, go to a land, I will show you. Same phrase that would be very familiar to Abraham, that he would go, oh, that's a very familiar voice, God. Huh. Giving a little bit of reassurance. But he also knows that he's not going to get the whole picture right now. He's really saying, trust me with what's about to happen. Trust me again, Abraham. Because we've got to understand that the verdict is still out on Abraham and his character. In, in Genesis 12 and, and 20, Abraham lies twice. Genesis 16, he doubts God. He sleeps with Sarah's servant. Okay, the good, though, is in Genesis 12, oh, man, he went to the land. He went where God asked him to go. So we've got this good and this bad, and the reader's got to be going, oh, interesting. So what really is going on here? God is asking for more of Abraham's heart. What is God asking in verse 1 and 2? It's God is asking for more of Abraham's heart. Is what I'm asking of you, your heart, more important than the promise, Abraham? Do you understand I care more about your heart than the promise in this? Would be something that Abraham is thinking, like, Oh, we can't get this out of order that God cares about Abraham's heart in the deepest way. So we should be sitting on the edge of our seat at this point. Now, God's going to start over with Abraham? It already took him so long to bear a child. We already went through all that stuff with Sarah and her, her doubt and, and her sanctification that came about. How is all this going to work out? The reader has got to be going, uh, this is an interesting plot twist. Has God asked too much of Abraham in this? Will he wilt back? And as they turn the page, see that another character takes front and center, or will it be Abraham? So we have to ask the next question is, how does Abraham respond? Verses 3 through 10. Right away, in verse 3, we see that it's, it trends in a positive direction. Early the next morning. That shouldn't surprise us because what it's going to show us is that Abraham, yes, he got up early the next morning. It's the same phrase that's used in Genesis 21, 14, when he got up the next morning. Genesis 19, 27 through 28. Both of those were difficult times in Abraham's life. And it shows the reader, guess what? Abraham's character isn't necessarily changing in this. Positive sign. 
That's fantastic for the reader as they're on the edge of their seat here. And then we see that it's a three-day journey. The wait. Oh. You imagine that long, long walk. You have to surrender even when you have to wait and you don't know the outcome. That's got to be exactly where he is. How, how tempted would he have been to pull off and come up with multiple excuses? He had plenty of time to think and problem solve of, how am I going to bail God out of this one? God, you must be wrong. But we see again in Abraham's character and response that he didn't take things into his own hands. He truly sat in a long season of surrender of unknown. <clears throat> then, as we go through this, we are revealed to us what Abraham might have been doing instead of problem solving. Because in verse 5 it says, we will worship and then we will come back to you. I just know God's character is he's got this. I just, I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know anything. All I know is God's character that we have seen so far. Just telling himself over and over and over again, I just gotta trust him. He's got it. He's gonna have it figured out. Again, even Isaac is clued in. Hey, Dad. Uh, we're missing a piece of the elements here. What, what are we going to do to kill? You know what? Uh, kind of probably going, is Dad going to kill himself? Or am I going to kill Dad? Is Dad going to kill me? And Abraham again. Don't worry, son. God will provide. God will provide. And this, this character is essentially new in the book of Genesis. You see, he moved forward even when it didn't make sense. They reached the place God had told them. Still moving forward. Still doing it. God hasn't changed the plan yet. Abraham building an altar. Oh, what's God going to come through here? Still moving forward. He binds Isaac and lays him on the altar. He's still moving forward. Takes the knife. You can see the tension on the pages. But he's still moving forward. It continues to build, and the reader has got to be going, this is all going to change if we pretend we don't know the ending, right? Holy cow. As we respond to God, are we moving forward even if it doesn't make sense? 
Are we moving forward? Even when it doesn't make sense in our life and what God might be asking of us. You see, we see that Abraham responded to God with surrender. He surrendered. That's Abraham's response. Almost too simple, but yet we see the complexity of the surrender isn't easy. We want to problem solve. Things don't make sense. And moving forward, the next question is, is how does God provide? How does God provide? Before we address this question, we need to understand where the story sits, and it continues to sit. Genesis 1 and 2, God is creator. Genesis 12, he's the promise maker. Genesis 14, God is most high. Genesis 22, God who provides. It literally says it in there. It is, God is the God who provides. Abraham is making a stamp on the character of God. God is becoming more defined as we go through Genesis. We are understanding more of his character. It's unreal. Because this God is mysterious as it starts in the beginning. But how does God actually provide? Well, one, we have to understand that he provides physically. And you may have gotten to verse 20, where sometime later Abraham was told, Milcah, naming off all these names, right? And Emily did a great job of nailing those names. I was like, ooh, man, yeah, great job. There's a whole bunch of names in there, but there's a little nugget for us to truly understand that shows God's character in such a cool way. All of those names of the second generation are male, except for one, Rebecca. Interesting. Rebecca. It kind of pops out that there's all these men, and then there's the Bethuel became the father of Rebecca. Well, who cares? Well, what does that really matter in this whole mess? And why would it matter if Abraham found out about this Rebecca? Because Rebecca turns out to be Isaac's wife. You see, God is saying, I'm going to physically provide the promise that your son is going to have a wife to carry on the lineage. And yes, see how Genesis 12 is going to come to fruition. It gives the reader a little nugget. Huh. God provides physically for us. Abraham, you don't need to worry about how your son is going to get a wife and continue on. This lineage. I've got it. So he provides physically for us. But he also provides spiritually. You see this burnt offering, you know, the complete dependence on God. 
Abraham knew that he had this sin in his life, these shortcomings, and it had to be taken care of. And he's probably going, okay, this is how God is going to take care of the sin in my life. But taking Isaac, that's a pretty big sacrifice, I guess. There's a lot going on in my heart and my soul that needs taken care of. But the crazy part is, is what we see in this is amazing parallels to the new covenant that would be revealed through Jesus. See, we have a loving father that loves his son. We have an obedient son who is willingly walking forward to his death. The wood probably would have been strapped to Isaac's back. Because his dad was probably too old to carry it. He's got to carry someone at least. Because the servants weren't there anymore. It was on him. But then there's this substitutionary ram that jumps in place so Isaac doesn't have to die. There's this sacrificial lamb. We've heard it talked about that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Amazing parallel. But the passage also mentions a location for us, Mount Moriah. You see, it's the future site of the temple for the Israelites, where there would be animal provisions for sin. They sacrificed in the temple over and over and over again. You see, Abraham's history and experience became theirs. That God would provide an animal for their sins. And they offered, sacrificed time and continually to God. But then we fast forward into the New Testament and Jesus says, I'm going to build a temple in three days. He references the temple. It's got to have some importance. In John 2, he's talking how they have defiled and they've made the temple. and They're essentially destroying the temple. It would have been a little bit of a dig at like, hey, you're not honoring Abraham in this. So I'm going to essentially recreate this in three days. They wouldn't have liked that at all. He's saying, I'm actually the ultimate, I'm paraphrasing, but the ultimate provision from God. That's what Jesus is saying here. When he says he's going to build up, I am the provision for sin. I will take the place for you. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. The readers in 1 John 2, 2 would have thought back to this story. Holy cow. He's the atoning sacrifice? 
real. And then for, not only for our sins, but for our eternal life. Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many so that he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. Sacrifice for salvation? Not only for atonement, but for salvation? Jesus' sacrifice ups the ante. Oh, it's not just for the sin, it's for my salvation. Unreal. That there would be all these parallels from Genesis 22 all the way to Christ. You see, Jesus, yes, he sacrificed his life for us. And I am overjoyed, church, that you guys are going through Lent uh, and, and observing Lent. And uh, as a child, I, I grew up with the tradition of Lent. Um, at the time, it was this like obligatory thing that you do. It's like, uh, all right, fine, I'll give up chocolate, whatever. Right? Like, you just kind of find that excuse thing. But Lent, in its best form, though yet created, yes, by man, it is such a good thing that we get to show Christ's sacrifice in such a small way. <laughs> in a way, like, I think of it as, oh, Jesus gave up his life. The least I can do is give up that. I think that's, that's small potatoes compared to what Christ gave up. Well, for 40 days, I think I could probably live without that. One small way we can represent Christ to the world. To sacrifice one earthly pleasure for a short period of time. Because he sacrificed so much more. And not as in a guilt way, but as in a thank you, an appreciation. Like, oh my goodness, I can't even come close to repaying it. Because God... He provides more abundantly than we could imagine, physically or spiritually. God blew Abraham's mind away with his provision. You see, Abraham's not the hero in this story. But he is the example of surrender to God. Jesus surrendered to the will of the loving Father on Mount Calvary. God is the hero and the example of love in this story. Because he sent the ram to save the life of Isaac. Just like God is the hero now, because he sent Jesus to save us from our wrongdoings. Now we're left with the question, how will we respond to a God who provides physically and spiritually. Church, I hope that this morning this isn't just another story for us. But we truly let God's provision pierce our heart. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're really struggling with what's next in my life. I don't know. 
He does. He'll take care of it. When? I don't know. How? I don't know. But if you let him define that, wow. That's cool. Maybe you're sitting here going, sin, I don't know. Maybe. Well, sin is really just coming up short. There's wrongdoings. That's all it is. It's not super complicated. It's not, we make it this like Christianese word, but it's just making mistakes. Time and time again. And man, Jesus takes away those mistakes mysteriously, only in a spiritual way. And that mystery should lead us into Easter. And church, I hope and I pray that as you continue to march towards the cross and towards the resurrection, that you and we and me would continue to be marveled at the mystery of Jesus and what he did. That it's not just another day and not just another time of like, woo, yep, Resurrection Sunday. No, it's like, wow, unreal. So let us respond to God who provides physically and spiritually into our lives. Let me pray. God, only you can orchestrate a story to display your character while drawing out someone into a deeper relationship with you. That only you can create a story that happened thousands of years before that creates great parallels to the story of your son Jesus. God, only you can provide in ways that we don't know how it's going to work out. Only you can provide for us spiritually. We can't do enough good things, God, to get away from all of those wrongdoings in our life. We do, we need you, God. Help us to be needy, but yet in awe of you. To you, we pray. Amen.